so I'm not great at asking for help. And I know some of you are just like me. Particularly guys uh, don't like asking for help either, just like we don't like asking for directions. Um, I will wander Lowe's for 30 minutes before I stop and ask somebody where something is. Like, I, I will just keep going. I know that sounds a little crazy. Uh, some of it's learned from the past. You, know, you ask people and they're unavailable and stuff. You're like, ah, oh, I don't want to bother anybody, that kind of thing. You, you, know what, you know what I'm talking about, right? You, you feel the same way. I see some heads nodding. You just don't like asking for help. Because part of it is, too, like for me personally, I don't want to admit that I need help either. Like, that, that's one of the things. So I'm going to give you guys my strategy for what I do. Because I know, like, some, sometimes you just got to buck up the courage and you got to ask. You get stuck. You, there's no other recourse other than doing that. So I'm going to give you guys my strategy and how I handle this. So I'm in a store. I don't know where to find something or I'm on my way somewhere. I need some information or even calling somewhere to order food because I can't do it online. I'm, I'm going to give you the perfect strategy. All right, you guys ready? I asked my wife to ask. That's what I do. All right, some of you are judging me right now, and I get that, and I completely understand. But I will. I'll ask Renee. I'll say, hey, can you find this out for me? Or we're in a store together. Hey, can you go and find out, like, where we're supposed to go get this thing? Because there's something about, I know, it's like pride is a terrible thing. You don't want to admit not knowing something. You, I, I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're not, you're like kind of sitting there. You don't want to quite admit it yet or anything like that. But pride is a funny thing. We can be stuck in the worst possible position in our life or somewhere along the road throughout our week. And like for some reason, we just do not want to ask someone for help, even though we know we can't move forward without it. And God knew that. He knew exactly how we are. He knew exactly that we would put ourselves in those kinds of situations, scenarios in, when we, in which we look at each other and we say, you should have known better. You should have known to ask help. But the reason we're so familiar with why that person should have asked help is because we put ourselves in the same position. That's why we're able to criticize so easily and judge that situation so easily because we do the same thing. All of us do it. We've all let pride and forcing our own path win. We've all sacrificed at the altar of self, and yet God has made himself ever-present to us to provide help. In Psalm chapter 46, verse 1, we read, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And all we have to do, and this is how he designed his relationship with us, even though he is God and we're not, all we have to do is ask. That's it. That's all he requires of us is to ask and trust that when we build an altar of help to him instead of our own pride and our own weakness, that he will be faithful to his promises. So today, our altar that we're talking about is the altar of help. Not that there is in the Bible necessarily an altar of help that we're all called to build, but we are talking about an altar that is called help today in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and, and turn to that. As you're turning to that, before we get into the text, I'm going to share some background about why this story is important and why this altar moment is important. But I want to first have us all acknowledge something that we've all been weak in at some point in our faith journeys. And this, it's this. God wants to be our first resort, but he often ends up being our last. He wants to be our first step. He wants us to be the first person 
for us to seek help from, but he often ends up being our last resort. Sometimes we'll try just about anything before we turn to God, and there's all kinds of different reasons for that. Sometimes we think maybe that he doesn't, it won't be worth his time, or something, oh, this is something so trivial and stuff, I shouldn't bother God with it, or maybe because we don't really believe his promises, or maybe because we tend to put other people or other things or other situations before him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, as you start through looking at, at the beginning of that chapter, you see that Israel, the nation of Israel, is in a state of revival. They are turning back to God. But to understand why this, is, this matters, you've got to look back a few chapters at a time. And there's this guy named Eli. He's the high priest. He's the judge of Israel. He's the ruler. And he's got these two sons, and they're terrible. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And they use their power and their influence over the nation of Israel for evil. They do a bunch of terrible things, and Eli doesn't really do anything about it. He could have corrected his sons. He could have asked God for help and, like, I don't know what to do with these kids. God, can you help me out? But instead, he lets them have the run of the nation. He chooses his sons over God. He chooses his own pride and unwillingness to ask for help after God. And in the meantime, he's got this kid that has been brought to him to study under him, and his name is Samuel. So first Samuel, this is the guy. This is the kid. So Samuel is there with Eli, and his first ever message from God is to go tell Eli, um, the nation's going to be punished because of what you've allowed your kids to do. Man, that's kind of a tough thing. Point of irony, too, when Samuel grows up and he becomes a dad, he ends up doing the same thing Eli does. So it's interesting how we like follow after our mentors or after our mothers or our fathers. Anyway, uh, so a little bit of a side there. So kind of interesting that Eli uh, gets this message from God. The nation of Israel is going to be punished. Still doesn't really do anything about it. And so fast forward a few, le- a few years later, and Hophni and Phinehas are leading the Israelite nation, their army, against the Philistines. Philistines are their next-door neighbors, and they're constantly getting on each other's grass, and they're constantly c- crossing the hedgerow and all that kind of stuff. And so they're always fighting. They're always warring together. And at this point, the battle is going on, and Hophni and Phinehas decide, you know what would be great? Let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant, the box that holds really important artifacts from Israel's uh, history. Let's bring it out because that represents the presence of God, and that will really rally the troops, and we'll beat the Philistines. This is a great idea. Except Hophni and Phinehas don't follow God. They've been leading Israel along the wrong path away from God. And so when they bring the ark out, it doesn't really do much. The Philistines end up defeating Israel, and they take the ark, which devastates the entire nation. This is terrible. This is one of the lowest points that the nation of Israel has ever experienced. The presence of God, the physical presence of God that represented that has been removed from them, and it's gone. So if you can imagine just the darkness that kind of settles over that time and period in this nation's history. A little time passes. The ark doesn't sit so well with the Philistines. They discover that having the presence of God among them, especially as they put him with their idols, doesn't work out so well. Think back to the end scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was kind of like that, except more tumors and plagues than ghosts necessarily. And so finally, the Philistines end up sending the ark back. They send it back to a town that's within Israel's history. Everybody's kind of a little freaked out and scared. They're not really sure what to do with it now because it's been gone for so long, and they know that they've rejected God, and it sits in the same place for about 20 years. 20 years it takes from, from all the evil, evil that they had been led to, 
and then separated from God, and then seeing him there but not really sure what to do with it or how to re-involve him back in their lives, the ark sits there for 20 years. And it's 20 years later that we jump in to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. And I'm going to start uh, towards the end of, of verse 2. Then, it was after all of this, finally, that the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. And maybe that's something that you can kind of relate to. It's like, man, this is my last-ditch effort. I don't really see any other kind of path. I don't really see any kind of other way to go. And so finally, I guess maybe God knew what he was talking about, and I'll turn, turn back to him. This is where they are in their lives. And so Samuel said to the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and their asterisks and served the Lord only. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see Baal represented um, and talked about a lot. And Baal covers all kinds of different gods and idols that were celebrated. But here's the thing, and here's the point that, that Samuel is making, is during all this time, the people of Israel had rejected God so much that they started worshiping other idols. And these were idols that came about. These were gods that were believed in by other nations that surrounded them. And so they had been so infiltrated by rejecting God by other things that they were celebrating gods that didn't even exist. Baal and Asherah, they represented love and war and fertility. And so, of course, these are all the things that you want to have happen, right? You want to have good crops, and that's gonna, you want to have power at war. You, know, you want to express uh, your love to someone else, and so kids are a part of that. And so that's what they had decided to worship, all the things that were attractive in this world. But they weren't God. And they realized that it left their lives empty, and they were stuck, and they needed help. And so revival was happening. So the Israelites put them away. And then Samuel says in verse 5, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel prays and intercedes, which means to pray for another person in this moment. The, the people of Israel weren't even in a, in a spot where they were ready to, to take on the responsibility for themselves. They were still looking for someone else to, to do this because they weren't really sure of what this direction and path looked like for their lives. And so Samuel took it upon himself to intercede for the people. And as a result of that, the people gathered water together and poured it out before God, which may seem a little strange. It's like, okay, you get a cup of water and pour it out. But water was a lot more valuable. It was a lot more precious. It was a lot harder to come by. It was a lot more work that you had to, to gain it. And so when you took water and you poured it out before God, it represented giving everything up. Everything of who you are, surrender to him. Because once you pour water out, you can't gather it back. You can't, you can't get it back together. And so they were pouring themselves their entire lives, giving them up back to God in that moment. In the meantime, when the Philistines hear about this gathering of the Israelite people, they say, hey, all of our enemies are in one place. This would be a great time to conquer them, defeat them, and to be done with them. And so the rulers of the Philistines come up to attack the Israelites. And when the Israelites hear about it, they're terrified. 
Now, I want you to think about this. This is this moment in the Israelite nation history where they're finally turning back to God, and they think, man, this is going to be great. We're going to turn back to God. Everything's going to be great in our lives. Everything's going to be easy. Everything's going to be perfect. It's going to be like it was in the old days where there's all kinds of great things happening in our lives. But that's not how things start off when they're in the, the, this midst of turning back to him. The Philistines come up to attack. Verse 8 in chapter 7, they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And so this is what Samuel does. He takes a suckling lamb and he sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. I don't know about you, but if I have a whole nation coming after me, I don't know that my first thought is to stop and say, you know what we should do? Like we should we should make a pile of stones over here. We should gather some wood. Does anybody have a lamb? Let, let's, get a, let's, let's have a burnt sacrifice right now. Like, this is great timing. We have this army that's coming. They're bearing down. You know, you think Braveheart. You think Lord of the Rings, and the armies are standing there. Can you imagine, like, what if Aragorn had said, you know what, guys, instead of going and attacking the Black Gate, let's hang out right here. Let's have a time of prayer, circle up as the enemies are coming. But while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Maybe if you grew up in a church or you've, you've sung hymns before, you've heard and sung, remember the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and there's this verse that said, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Um, I think that's right. Somebody check me on that. I think I've got a good memory on that. And, and, and Ebenezer simply just means stone of help. And that's what Samuel erects right there to remind everybody, hey, in this desperate hour, in this defining moment, in this inciting incident in the nation of our lives, God showed up. That when we stopped and we turned and we gave everything in this midst of needing desperately God to show up, we turned back to him, we dropped everything just for him, God showed up in that moment. And maybe there's something in your life that you need help in. Or, or maybe there's something that you have not yet admitted that in your life you need help in. And one of the things that God has promised for us is that when we turn to him and we ask for it and we allow him to lead us is that he will show up and help. So this morning, I just want to share a few things that the altar of help requires or what God asks for us in order for that promise to be true in our lives. And the first thing is repentance. That's where all of this starts with the nation of Israel is they decide, you know what? It's time to turn back to God, which is what repentance means. It means you're going in the wrong direction. You turn around and you head back in the other direction, the one that God has led you in. And that's where it starts. If you want God to hear you, if you want God to show up, if you want God to help, it starts with actually turning back to him, trusting in his promises, realizing and recognizing, hey, that what we were doing in the past without him, when we were rejecting him, that's not worth holding on to anymore. That we've got to turn back to him. In Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, um, if we read, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And sometimes 
when you're in that desperate moment, you're wondering, why didn't God answer this prayer? Why didn't he show up? Is it because you're not actually trusting him with your life? Is it because you actually have not put him in priority in your life? Is it because, you, because of your actions and the way you live your life, you don't actually believe who God is and what he has promised for your life? God wants us to turn toward him wholeheartedly. They symbolize this by pouring out this water that represented their whole selves and saying, this is not something that we're going to try to gather back to us into our own pride, into our own selves. We're pouring this out to you, and this is done, and it is over with at this moment. We're going to be guided and directed by you from now on. As a father, what do I want for my kids? I want them to turn to me when they need help, when they're stuck. I don't want my kid to break a mason jar and then hide the glass in his closet without telling me and then have to teach him the lesson that it's okay, you don't get in trouble when you come and ask for help, but you do when you make the wrong decision and you try to cover it up. That's, that's the heart of God. Like he wants us to come to him. He knows. He knew that we would get stuck. That's why he sent Jesus. He knows that we're going to need help. He just wants us to admit it and to turn to him and ask for it. Maybe there's some bales and asterisks in your way. Maybe there's some things in our culture and your life that have seemed to be appealing, but you realize that they keep returning empty and void in your life. What are we putting in between us and God? What do you and I need to pour out to turn to him with all of our hearts? God wants us to repent. Second thing is he wants us to ask. He wants us to talk to him. Prayer is such a foundational piece of our relationship with God that he asks for us to take part in. And it's not because he needs it, it's because we need it. And because it helps us to remind and understand that his presence is with us and he wants to show up. Israel was in the middle of revival, things were going great, and yet they get attacked. And he's like, well, how in the world is this going to happen? Well, because they needed to understand and they needed to remember that we need God. And we need to ask for him to show up. Most of us want to be independent, right? That's what we value almost more than anything. Else. Well, money's probably the thing we value most in our culture. But independence and freedom is one of the top things that we value. And yet there's this countercultural way of thinking that Jesus brings is that you and I, as much as we might value our independence, need to admit at some point that we need God and that we've got to ask for his help to show up. Samuel prays twice in this passage. At the revival in this assembly, he intercedes to the Lord for the people. As they're under, under attack, the people look at Samuel and say, man, he's, somehow he's got this connection to God that is different for, for ours. Please keep praying to the Lord for us. And he cries out to the Lord's behalf, and the Lord answered him. It's not that Samuel was somehow more special than anyone else in the nation of Israel. It's because he was the one who was turning to God, and he was the one who was asking. If you want God to show up, pray persistently, boldly, specifically. Whatever you need to pray, write them down. Pray what God has already promised. Here, here's the thing that I think is really interesting. is that A lot of times we 
look, I, I think, because sometimes I look at stories like this in the Bible, and there's no way that, like, this could be true for me or that this, this could happen. There's something special and different that's happening here. God had already promised to take care of the nation of Israel. That, that was already something that he wanted to do for them and wanted to give for them. It wasn't that Samuel was making some radical new, different request of God that he had never fulfilled before. God had already said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to show up, have courage. I'm going to do this for you as a nation. And Samuel just said, hey, God, we're ready to pay attention to you, and, and we want that to be true. Pray what God has already promised for you and for me in your life when you get stuck, when you need help. And God will provide all the help that you need and then some. Pray, ask for help, repent, because we all need the presence of God to get where we need to go. We all need his presence as we move through this life. Israel was in a, in a funk spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. Maybe you can relate to that. We need God's presence and we need his leading to get where we need to go. We can't get there just by being good. We can't get there just by not doing bad stuff. We can't get there just by living our life and being a part of the day-to-day -day monotony. If we want to be where God wants us to be, you need the presence of God. And so wait on his movement. Move when he moves. When they gather together at this place called Mizpah, Mizpah means watchtower. It's a place, it's a symbolic place, but it's also a place where they were keeping watch for stuff. Be waiting on and be looking for God's movement. In order to do that, pray, ask, repent, follow, be within his presence. Some of you don't know this, but underneath the carpet and on the flooring in this building are scriptures, God's word that cover this floor. And one of the reasons for that is because we know that beyond anything that we do, the only thing that really matters is the presence and foundation of God and Him being with us and we being with Him. That we need His help. That we need Him to guide us. And maybe when you, when you think through this, it's not something you're familiar with. Like prayer, like I mean, where do I start? Where do I go? Uh, tonight, we actually have a prayer night here at Velocity at 5 p.m. And we would love for you to come and be a part of that. Regardless of whether or not you feel like, I'm a veteran prayer. I, I got this and I do this all the time. I pray an hour every day on my knees before I go to bed. Or if it's like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what to say. I hope you, you come and join us this evening as we pray and we seek God's presence just like we're in his presence right now as we're gathered and worshiping him together. All of us need this altar of help. All of us need this defining moment in our lives. And my prayer for you and for me is that as we look at the highlights and even the lowlights of our life, we can point out moments where we can set that stone, that Ebenezer, and say, God showed up there. That's something that I spent time praying about. That's something I spent time turning to God for. It's something I, I spent time seeking his presence in, and he showed up. Maybe it's going to be a way that God has provided for you. Maybe it's something that you have moved through in this life, some physical thing. Maybe it's an emotional thing, whatever it is. 
God wants to show up. And you don't have to be great at asking for people, people for help. But you and I can be great at asking God for help. And his promise is that he will show up. So let me pray for you and for me this morning that we would live that kind of life and have that kind of relationship with him. God, um, there are a lot of things that get in the way and that are distractions for us. And we ask that you help us to see what those are so we can get them out of the way, so that we can pour them out, so that we can be done with them, so that we can be in your presence and that we can be in community with you, in relationship, in conversation with you. We ask that you give us the words to say. We ask that you give us the the path that we need to walk to you. And God, we thank you for the promise that you have made to always show up for those that love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Every week at Velocity, we take communion uh, together. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still stuck and we desperately needed help, God had already established a plan. Even when Samuel was there in this time of revival for the Israelite nation, God knew that Jesus was coming. And he did that for us because even when we don't want to admit that we, that we need help, he has already provided it and it's a free gift for us. Right now we're going to share uh, in this time of communion together as we consider and think about how this altar of help is a foundational way that God wants us to interact and share in our faith with him.